my goodness, that's intense. <laughs> but the thing that makes it great is it's so true. Yeah, doesn't it feel like the world that we live in? And in contrast to all of that, uh, we have come to the book of Colossians. And we're going to look at four verses, just four verses today that I think kind of put all that stuff in context. We're going to be in chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. I want to read it for you. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Father God, we uh, thank you for uh, this morning and the time that we have to get into your word to look at just four verses, a couple sentences from the book of Colossians, and yet how we need these words today. Living in a world that has gone mad, that is crazy, your words speak clarity to us. They bring focus to us. And so I pray for us this morning, Father, that we will, that we will focus on your word, that we will give full attention to what it is that you have to say to us this morning, believing that these are words of life and that they can change us. And so we pray for these things now. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. 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 Well, it's good to have you here. And you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you are a very important person, apparently. You are um, very important to a lot of people in this world who want your attention. And they want your focus. And they want to be your priority in life. And maybe you kind of wandered in here this morning thinking you're not a very important person. But you are to a lot of companies. There are a lot of people who make products who, to whom they don't even know your name. But you are important to them. And they're spending a lot of money to get your attention. Because they want their product to be really important to you. They would love it if it was the most important thing in your life. There are service providers who want to be the most important thing in your life. There's, there's social media, um, and they want you on their platform, and they want you looking, and they want you clicking, and, uh, and, and they want you looking at their videos, and they want you posting and looking at the posts of other people. They really want you on there. You know, Netflix really wants you. Apparently, uh, less and less of you are giving your time to Netflix, but they, they're desperate to have you and to have your money, and, and they want you to go home and binge uh, tonight. And maybe it's a person. Right? There are people in your life who they want to be the most important thing in your life. And some of them are, are, are obviously important people. It's your spouse, your kids, your parents. Maybe it's a coach on a team and that coach would prefer if, if the team was the most important thing to you right now or maybe it's a teacher and we're getting to the end of the school year and that teacher would really like it if, if, if their class was the most important thing that you were focused on right now for that test or that paper or whatever it is or maybe you got a job to go to uh, maybe you got a good job so you don't have to go tomorrow but you'll go on Tuesday and your boss would prefer it if that job was the most important thing that you're doing um, it could be an inanimate object oddly enough sometimes um, the things that compete for our uh, lives, for our attention, are things like uh, homes and possessions and boats and RVs and all that kind of stuff. Or maybe it's none of that stuff. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's uh, your ego that wants to be first in life. Maybe it's your need to be noticed. You need to be liked. You need to be the center of attention. But I can tell you this. Here's what I know. While I don't know what is the first thing in your life, I know this. You can only have one first thing. You can only have one thing that is more important than anything else. And I don't know what it is for you, but it's something. We all have something in our life that is number one. And then we come to the book of Colossians. It's, it's a letter written to this young church, probably just a year or two old. Uh, young believers. And Paul writes this, this book to them, this letter to them. And he makes a very bold claim all throughout the four chapters of this letter. And that is that Jesus is Lord. And not only is Jesus Lord, but he is Lord of all. There's a, a, a kind of a cliche of saying that used to go, he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And Paul is making this point. And in, and in our society, right, this is kind of, um, of offensive and, and abrasive because our, our culture is a lot like the, the culture in which this letter was written, in which 
you know, our culture will say you can have your truth and, and he can have his truth and she can have his, her truth and we can all have our own truth and what's most important to us. But the one thing you can't do is make any universal claim be, for anybody beyond you. You can't just come out and say, you know, here's my truth and here's your truth. And yet this is exactly what Paul does. He says that this claim that Christ is, is Lord of all is true for you whether you believe it or not. Whether you bow to him right now or not. He is the Lord of all. And that message of Colossians today is an offensive message. It is politically incorrect. It is an, an intolerant message. It's a, it's a scandalous message. And it is the only message of the church. And we cannot deviate from this message because it is the message of the gospel, the message of God. And today, we're looking at just four verses. Like, that's all. <laughs> but they're pretty packed. And really what we could say is there, there's kind of uh, two firsts that Paul has in here, and they kind of mirror each other. Um, the first is creation, and the second will be the church. But let's start in the first part, and Paul makes the claim that Jesus has first place in creation, all of the created world. And we're gonna kind of break this down in the text a little bit this morning, and we're gonna start by, and we're gonna have a couple of odd phrases here to describe the text, but the first thing that Paul is saying to us this morning, and you may have noticed it when we read it, is, is that we would say Christ is the uncreated and created flesh. So it's a little awkward in the way that we uh, read it, but it's that way on purpose. In verse 15, this is how he starts the passage we're looking at today. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. So that's kind of interesting. He's the image of something that's invisible, and he's the firstborn of all creation. So when we talk about Jesus, we have to talk about the Trinity. And when we talk about the Trinity, it always, I know it wants to make our heads explode and it doesn't make good math to us when we say that there's one God who eternally exists in three persons and yet he is one in essence. So we talk about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And you know, there's a lot of analogies we could use to describe um, the Trinity, but none of them are good and none of them are even worth mentioning because they all break down. When we're trying to describe in human terms something that just isn't human and something that we can't really relate it to in this world. But the Bible teaches us that God is one, and the Bible teaches us that God is spirit. God is spirit. So what does that mean when we say that God is spirit? Well, it means um, that he's not, he's not physical in his essence, in his nature. He is, he is beyond that. God is spirit. And one of the things we could say about God being spirit is spirit is not visible to our physical eyes. Our physical eyes are not tuned to see God. It doesn't mean God isn't seeable. It's not like God is up in heaven and their beings up in heaven and they don't know where he is. Uh, they don't know who to look at when they worship. They can see God. We can't see God with our eyes. But Jesus, the point here, Jesus makes the invisible visible to our physical eyes. And he talks in this text, he says he is the image. And that word image, that the, the Greek word is the word icon there. Icon. And we get an English word any guesses what English word we might get from the Greek word icon? Uh, it would be icon. It just spelled a little bit differently there. Icon. Now the word icon in the Greek means an image, uh, a, a representation. Um, back in that culture, it could have been like a, a statue. It could have been a carving. It was often used, icon was often used to, uh, to describe a picture or, or a painting of something. It, it wasn't the thing, but it represented the thing. So we, we're surrounded by icons, by the way, in our world. But here's one that I got from the office this week. And this is, this is a globe. And so you may recognize this. And, and this is an icon. It's an icon of, of the earth on which we live. And you can look at it. And you can learn some things about the earth. You can see the names of continents. And we can look at countries here. See where the oceans and the seas are. And it reveals some things. It's an icon. It reveals things about the world, the earth that we live in. But it's not the thing. This is not the earth, but it represents the earth. And so when we talk about Jesus as an icon, and again, I hope this isn't too confusing, we would say that yes, he is an icon because he represents God in the flesh. He's an icon. He's a portrait of God, but he's more than that. So he is that, but he's more than that, right? That's simple, I understand. Um, he's more than a mere picture of God. 
He is God. He's both of those things. He's God in flesh and he is God. So for instance, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, it tells us this. In the beginning was the word. Uh, Logos is the word there in the Greek and it, it, it represents God. It's talking about Jesus. And so if I could decode this, it, in the beginning was, was God was Jesus and, and the word, that is Jesus, was with God and, and was God. And so it reads confusingly as several passages will today, but the point is that Jesus is eternal God who came to earth in the flesh. So he was an icon of God for us, and yet he actually was God at the same time. Uh, in verse 18 of, of John, it says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Uh, exegeomai is the Greek word there that you may be familiar with the word, the English word exegesis from, which is a word we use sometimes to talk about how we study the Bible. Uh, it is to unfold or to, to pull out, um, to, to tell or declare the word. So he is the exegesis of God, literally, that he reveals the character of God, uh, what God thinks, how God feels, how God, what God values. So if someone was to ask you, and you know, sometimes when I get in conversations with people, they'll be like, you know, who are you to tell me about God? I mean, have you ever seen God? And of course, I haven't seen God and you haven't seen God, but we could say that there were some people that did see God lived about 2,000 years ago and they saw a representation of God and they actually saw God and they wrote it down. And so we have in the, the Bible, we have uh, words that describe God for us. Jesus made God known. Uh, the words that he spoke reveal God to us. The actions and the reactions of Christ uh, painted a picture for us of what God is like. Uh, his priorities, the way he spent his time, his character, his, his judgments. The, the miracles that he worked reveal things to us about God. Uh, the way he was humble, the way he served reveal God to us. The crucifixion reveals something to us about God. The resurrection reveals something to us about God. And this has absolute relevance to everyone. Paul will go on to say this uh, in a passage that's coming up, that this is for everyone. That the fact that Christ is creator is true for everyone. It includes the Colossians. He's telling them he's creator and he created you. And, it, and quite frankly, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. In one sense, it doesn't make it any less true. It's true for the Colossians. It's true for you and for me today. It's true for our family and our neighbors and our casual acquaintances. It's true for the agnostics in life who say, well, I don't know and how can you know? It's true for the atheists in life. They can deny that it's true, but it doesn't make it any less true. And so Paul comes out with this kind a very offensive statement where he says actually Jesus is the creator of all things. He is God eternal who came to us and shows us what God is like. And then he goes on to as we go through the passage to tell us this that he is the creator of everything created. So I know that's a little redundant but just trying to make a point here in verse 15 he says he is the and this is an interesting phrase he's the firstborn of all creation. So in our Western ears, in our culture, we don't really understand what that word firstborn is, but we think we do. We hear firstborn, so it must refer to the firstborn. It's not actually uh, what it mostly meant in that culture in, in that day. Um, it sounds like it's saying Jesus was the first person created. And in fact, there have been uh, cults who have taught that through the years. Um, the heresy of Arianism teaches that. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses today teach that. They'll teach that Jesus was not eternal, that at some point God created him. So he was the, the firstborn of all uh, things that were created. And that he wasn't God when he was created, but maybe at some point he became God or he became extremely enlightened, uh, spiritually speaking. But he's not eternal. Of course, the problem is that the Greek word firstborn here has a much deeper and broader meaning than somebody who was physically firstborn. Uh, firstborn can mean the first child, but that's not really what the word is going after. It more fundamentally means something that's first in rank or something that's first in honor. Um, in the first century uh, of the Roman Empire, the word firstborn mostly referred to uh, somebody who would uh, legally inherit um, the, the family inheritance. That's basically, not most of the time, that was someone who was born, the firstborn male in the family. So even then, it wasn't necessarily the firstborn. They could have had uh, one or two or, or ten daughters, but 
you know, maybe number 11 was the son, but he gets called the firstborn. Why? Because he's the one who's highest in rank when it comes to inheriting um, whatever it is that the family, that the parents would leave behind. So sometimes it was the firstborn, but not always. It's not about biology. It's about legal rights. It's about inheriting something. And this is what Paul's talking about here. So when he calls Christ the firstborn of all creation, what he means is Jesus will inherit, if you will, all of creation. That It all belongs to him and it will all return to him. Now, why does it all belong to him? Well, in verse 16, he tells us this. He says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, in case you didn't get the point, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. So the Roman culture of Paul's day had uh, countless um, theories and myths of creation. And most of them involved a whole bunch of, of gods, little gods who were involved. There was no one God who created everything. It was, the universe is too big and too complex. So there was a whole bunch of little gods who were all kind of specialty gods and they were all involved in creation. So Paul comes along, the gospel comes along, Jesus comes along and says, actually there's only one God, one God uh, eternally existing in three persons, because uh, that's not confusing, who created everything. Uh, and he came to this earth and he was born in a human body and yet he was God at the same time. And they would have thought this crazy. This would be unbelievable. And yet Paul says, but this is just a few years ago. In fact, you can still go find people who talk to Jesus and, and people who saw miracles and maybe people who ate you know, that lunch that he provided and they could tell you because they saw Christ in the flesh. But Paul's point here is that Jesus is, we might call him the agent of creation. That everything was created through him. And by everything, Paul says, everything. And he, you know, kind of broadens the categories. There, there's visible things. He made those. And invisible things. Well, we don't know what those are, but, you know, because they're invisible. But, yeah, he created those. And there's, there's physical things. He created those. And there's spiritual beings. He created those. There's things on earth. We can see. Yeah, he created that. There's things not on earth. Uh, he created that. There's the microscopic stuff and the cosmic stuff. There's the biological stuff and the geological stuff. Yes, yes, check, check. He created all that. There's human beings. There's spiritual beings, angels and demons, and he created all that stuff. All of it's created by God. I don't know, uh, I don't know if, you've, um, if you've lived so long that the world doesn't continue to inspire you and feel awesome, but I feel, I've lived a lot of years and it still inspires me. And it's, they're, they're just things on this earth that when I see them, they're, they just kind of make my brain want to explode because of the amazingness of it all. Like sometimes it's just going to the coast and just for me standing uh, uh, on the beach uh, and just the vastness of the ocean and um, the, the sound of it for me is awesome when I think about it. The fact that Jesus created it all and everything that's in it. Or maybe it's uh, being in a forest. You know, just being away from all this craziness that just is, is, it has a kind of an overwhelming impact, doesn't it? Or maybe for me sometimes it's going to another place like going to Nicaragua, just going to a different part of the world and where the plants are different and the birds sound different, you know, and, and everything's, there's just something about thinking, Jesus created all this too, all of this different stuff. Um, for me, uh, sometimes it's just a sunset or the, the quietness of snowfall. You ever go out when the snow's falling and it's just so quiet? It's almost deafening, it's so quiet. I... Three of the most uh, amazing events of my life spiritually were the birth of each one of my children. And for those of you parents, right, you know that moment when you hold the child and you're kind of talking to it and they look back at you and there's just, and you start to think, I didn't make this. God made this. God made this. this God designed this. This belongs to, G there's just something about it that's so spiritual. I'd say, you know, probably th the three best worship services I ever attended were all in a hospital. Um, being with our, my children and thinking about the God who made them. For me, a big one is just the night sky. You go outside sometimes where there's uh, not a lot of light interfering and you look up at the stars as I get older, I can't see as many stars as I used to, but I look up there and I see the stars and there's something about it that is awesome 
Isn't that true? Something that's overwhelming. I would suggest it's overwhelming because it should be, because it's, a, it's supposed to be. That's why it was designed that way. I, the problem for us is, if you want to talk about things like the universe, it's just, it's incomprehensible to us. It, it just is. And yet it's there. And it's meant to be a billboard to us. And we can talk about the universe a little bit and it's just, it's hard for us to grasp. So we could talk about the solar system. We could talk about the planets in our solar system. And our solar system is big, it's big. And here you could, you know, we can kind of represent um, the size of the planets in relation to each other. That's something that we can do. This is pretty close in terms of the, but you can see what, to fit the sun on here means the earth is just a dot down here. It's right down, that's, that's us all of our self-importance and everything, right? So that's us down there. And we can, we can illustrate the relative size, but here's what we cannot do on paper. We cannot represent um, the distance relatively between the planets. Like, we can't do that. So again, this kind of gives you, in order to make the planets a little bit bigger to see, the sun's so big it doesn't fit on here. But the one thing you can't do is represent the distance between the planets because in order to do that, all these would be so small they couldn't be on the page, period. Maybe you've seen, if you go on YouTube, you can see a guy who wanted to represent the distance between planets. So he went to a desert, have you seen that? And the earth was a marble. And even at that, he had to, you know, these planets had to be miles away in order to make that happen. But the, the challenge here is that the, just our solar system is so big that we look at this and we can't grasp the distance. This, these all look the same, but they're not the same. So for instance, if you just, just take the earth um, and the moon. So the moon, we can't see on here because it's so small. You can go outside and you can see the moon up there. And the moon doesn't look that far away, really, in relation to everything else. But did you know that you can fit um, the other planets between the Earth and the moon? You can fit the planets of our solar system and have 1,300 miles to spare, just so they don't crash into one another, right? So again, we, it, when we start, and it, you look at it and go, that there, that can't be. You can fit Saturn and Venus. On. Yeah, you can fit all of that between the Earth and the Moon. It's a big solar system that we live in. So we could talk about, uh, you know, how big it is and the distance. But again, the problem is we can't really comprehend. So we could talk just about the Earth and Mars. The, the average distance between the Earth and Mars, the average distance is about 140 million miles. Okay, so the, the average distance, it's, it's as close as 40 million miles at one point, but that's kind of the halfway point with orbiting. So this is, on average, 140 million miles. So here's what I know, that means nothing to you. <laughs> a mile, like I like to run, I, like five miles feels like a long way to me. The 140 million miles. Miles is just, it's a number that doesn't really compute with us. So what we uh, could do is think in terms of comparisons. Like, for instance, you can fit over 11,000 Earths between the Earth and the Sun. 11,000. If we were trying to just shrink this down a little bit, we could talk about, uh, we could scale down the distance between the planets to steps. So... And at first I was going to do this on the stage and you'll see why I couldn't do it. So I was going to take and put a little thing over here and say that's the sun. And uh, if we just scaled it down, we would say, you know, six steps and uh, that would get us to Mercury. Six steps if we scaled it down. And then uh, sort of the sun and at six steps and I'd have Mercury and then uh, another five steps would get me to uh, Venus and then another four steps would get me to the Earth. So we could get here. But then this is where it gets dicey. Then from the Earth to Mars is eight steps. So we're going to kind of start to expand out. So now we're getting across the stage. And then from uh, Mars to Jupiter is 55 steps, right? So this is where the problem is. We put all these together, but we start to, so for instance, between Jupiter and Saturn, it's 66. And then we're up to 144 steps just between these two. So obviously, you know, I yeah, well, the stage isn't that big. And then you're 163 steps. So again, I, none of this stuff is, you know, we see it and I don't think it really computes to us. We could do a lot of comparisons. For instance, we could compare North America to Jupiter, right? That's North America right there compared to Jupiter. So again, you're like, oh, Jupiter's big. Uh, we can think about, um, we, so we can think about the Earth. So here's uh, what the Earth likes, looks like from the moon. 
And uh, here's what the earth looks like from Mars. That's the earth coming up there. We, we use that because that's where it looks biggest. Um, you're like, oh, well, that's a little small. Here's the earth from Saturn. That's us right there, right? All of our self-importance, like, that's it. That's us. Um, and then, that's just our, that's our solar system. And our solar system is so big that, again, we can't really talk in terms that make any sense to us, but that's just our solar system. Our solar system exists in a galaxy. What's the name of the galaxy? The Milky Way, like the candy bar. So, right? So here is our solar system, but that, the blue dot's telling you roughly where it is. It would just be about two pixels on there. That's our solar system in the Milky Way galaxy. So we feel like the Earth is big, and then we compare it to the solar system, and then we compare it to the galaxy that exists in. This galaxy is 100,000 light years across. Like you can't even measure it in miles. There's no, you can't do it. There's too many, too many zeros. If you're traveling at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years to get from one end to the other. So now we can go, wow, well, that's really big, right? The Hubble telescope has done a good job of revealing a lot of the, the heavens to us. And, um, and they've taken like, you can go just like about that. And it's taken a, a deep space picture. And about that big in the night sky reveals a picture like this. And every one of them, all of those, are galaxies. All of these. They estimate there's a, a, I, 10 years ago they estimated there was 100 billion galaxies. Now they say there we're more in the number of the trillions. And sometimes when I talk with people who are, are not Christians, they'll say things like, you know, I don't really believe in God. And when I look at the universe, I think to myself, if there was a God, why would he make a universe that big when most people who ever live will never see it, never know it's there? Why would God do that? What a waste of space. And the only answer I can give you is um, it's meant to reflect him. And that's why it's that big. Because as we uh, advance in technology, we continue to find, oh, God's even bigger than we thought he was. I think God did a pretty good job of representing himself in the universe. But Paul doesn't really stop there. He also lists beings. He talks about things like thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. And Paul really doesn't define those or distinguish those. His point is this, that Christ is supreme over them, whether they be angels or, or demons or whatever they are. He is Lord over all. And then he goes on as he talks about creation. He says, not only is Christ the creator of everything created, which is in itself mind-blowing, but he also goes on to say, and he is the goal of creation. So what's the point of this all? Well, again, in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and created for him. He is the goal of creation. In fact, some translators say that the word for is better translated um, that in the idea of, uh, of returning. So that the universe has gone forth from him and will return to Christ. In Philippians, it tells us this, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that this is our ultimate reality. If this is the reality of all of creation, then what would be a logical response from us today, right here, right now? What would be the logical thing for us to do in light of what Paul is saying? Actually, in another letter, Paul tells us exactly what the logical thing to do would be. In, in Romans, Paul spends the first 11 chapters just kind of laying out doctrine and theology, just very, um, very deep stuff. And as he gets to the end of that section, the last verse of chapter 11, he says this, for from him, that is from Christ, from Christ and through him and, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. And then in the very next verse, at the beginning of chapter 12, he says this, and there, some translations begin therefore, which is good. So in light of all that, I appeal to, to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, to give your whole life to God. In light of everything we've talked about, I encourage you to give your whole life to God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Die to yourself, live for God, holy and acceptable, which is your, and this is the part of it, which is your spiritual worship. Now, different translations give different things there, but the word spiritual there in the Greek is the word logikos. Okay, again, I know you guys are Greek scholars here, right? What English word do you think comes from the Greek word logikos? Like maybe logical, we get the word logical, we get the word rational from logikos. Rational. In other words, what's he saying? The only rational response, the only reasonable response to all of this is that we put Christ first in our life. He is first in creation. And he had to be first in us. Actually, he goes on and says one more thing about this God of creation. We might describe him as the glue uh, of, of creation. In verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That word before, again, it's not quite what it sounds. There's a lot more to it. It, it refers primary to, uh, primarily to rank and to time. So it's saying he's both before all things, and he is, a, he is above all things. He exists above all things. It, when Jesus was on this earth. He had a conversation with some religious leaders. They didn't like him. They didn't like what he was teaching. And they got in a conversation about Abraham. Maybe you remember this. And in John 8, 58, Jesus says some really interesting kind of, it sounds weird grammatically. Uh, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right, that's awkward. That's uh, weird grammatically. So they picked up stones to throw him. Not because his grammar wasn't good, but because they knew exactly what he's trying. His tenses sound weird, but what he's basically saying is, you know, 1,700 to 2,000 years ago, Jesus says, you know, Abraham was, and when Abraham was, I am. So I already was. I, I was already there and I was before him. And because he's eternal, there really is no time. He doesn't exist and just, he always is. Now, he's also referring to God's revealed name, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. And so he's, he's claiming to be eternal God. They know it. That's why they want to kill him. But it tells us here that Jesus is eternal and he holds all things together. And apart from his continuous activity, things wouldn't stay together. So he's the firstborn and the creator and the sustainer. And when he says those things, I think Paul is hoping to kind of, you know, blow our minds a little bit, to, to stretch our thinking. To maybe, a, maybe a headache would be appropriate as we try to wrestle with these things. But here's the thing. Paul is leading to a more important point. Like all this about the universe, that isn't even Paul's point. He's trying to lead us up to a point which we will be talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks to come. But the point that he's trying to get to is this, that Jesus not only has first place in creation, but he has first place in the church. And this is really the point that Paul wants to get to. So we might ask the question, why would the creator of the universe lower himself to become a part of it? To live in this dirty, stinky, filthy world, to live in a body full of, you know, smells and noises and all sorts of stuff. Like, why would he want to do that? And the answer is because that the first creation was infected by sin. That humanity had rejected God and his first claim on us and his first place in our life. And that's really sin in a nutshell is to put something other than God first in our lives. And so they put other things. They put their desires and created things and other people and even themselves before Christ. And the result was um, spiritual death and physical death. And those two kind of go together in our world. And it's been noted, if you open your Bible in some translations, you'll notice that verses 15 through 20 is written like a poem because it's a poem in which um, Paul's making a parallel. The first part is he talks about creation and in the second part he talks about the new creation. So in the first part he talks about the universe and the second part he talks about the church. But it's the church that's the point here. And we could really break this down into two things. He's telling us, first of all, that Christ is the, we could call him the head of the church if the church is like a body, in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. So the church is referred to often in the New Testament as, as a body. Uh, believers are called the body of Christ. And it's a great kind of picture for us because in the same way that the body is made up of a whole bunch of unique members, we could call them, fingers and toes and nose and all that kind of stuff, so the body of Christ is made up of a whole bunch of very unique 
individuals that God brings together to form one body. Now we're going to talk when we get into chapter 2 and 3 why that can be so hard and why that can be so challenging because we are stuck together whether we like it or not. We don't get to choose our spiritual family. God chooses them for us and sometimes we find ourselves stuck in a body with people that you know maybe are annoying to us or you know, maybe you're like that guy's more like a nose or, or he's like a big toe and I, and I we find it hard to uh, love some people and get along but we are to love and care for each other but the big point that Paul's making here is that Christ is the head of the body let's think of it that way right so just as he is sovereign over creation just as he's sovereign over the world he is sovereign over the church he is the one who has saved every member of the church and placed them in the church he's the one who created each one of us who designed each one of us, who gave each one of us life, who died for us, who rose for us, and who saves us. And the point here is that he is the head. He's the brains of the operation. He's calling the shots. He's directing us. He says here he is the beginning. Arche is the Greek word there that means first principle or source. So he's the source of the church. He created it. He gave it life. This is so important, folks that we recognize that Christ is the head of the church. It's where almost every problem starts in the church when we don't recognize that and confess that and live according to that. And then he says this, that he is the firstborn from the dead. So this is it. There's that word firstborn again. And again, you know, some people kind of misused it earlier in the passage, but it comes up again, and I'm glad it does because here it's really going to define firstborn for us. All right, so the firstborn from the dead is a reference to his resurrection. It's saying he's the, the first of, of a resurrection, which is interesting because he wasn't the first person ever resurrected. Other people have been resurrected before Christ had. In fact, Christ himself had resurrected some people. One of them's name was Lazarus. So firstborn obviously cannot mean the first person who was ever raised from the dead. It means what that word firstborn meant, that he is uh, of first importance. We might say here that his resurrection is the most important resurrection because it makes every other resurrection possible. And when we place our faith in Christ, it is the resurrection of Christ that makes your resurrection, your hope for glory, and mine possible. Now, throughout the Bible, sin and death are just always linked together. And that's important because when Christ defeated death, which we know he did because he rose from the dead, that's always a dead giveaway, right? He rose from the dead. No pun intended. That was a dead giveaway. Uh, but um, when he did that, it's also a signal that he defeated sin. It signals that he is the one who can save us. And those who trust in Christ, we share in his victory over sin and we share in his victory over death. And so the firstborn here is a reference to the, to the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection of Christ. It is the firstborn in that it will be repeated by many who place their faith in Christ. And then he goes on and says, so that in everything he might be preeminent. That Christ is to have first place in creation. And first place in the new creation in the church. So this is very important to us as a church. And we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. But at the very least we could say this. Paul is reminding us as a church as he was reminding the Colossians. Because this was a letter read to a, a church of people in their service. And his point was Jesus must be first in your church. And that would be his message to us today. He must be first at Gateway. He has to be first in everything here. And if you are a person who uh, watches the news, then you would have to be concerned at some level. We heard a story unfold this week that we've heard before uh, with other groups, but you may have heard the report about the SBC, about the Southern Baptist Convention this week, uh, that an investigation was done on their behalf. They asked for the study to be done, but what it revealed was over the past, at least the past 20 years, there has been sexual abuse and sexual misconduct by leaders not all of them, but by some leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention. And lists have been kept, and lists were covered up, and excuses were made. It all sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? It's not the first time that we've heard this, and it's actually, it's just crushing. I remember hearing that um, and just feeling crushed by that at the, at the reputation of Christ in the church because of this. I sat with the staff at prayer one morning this week and we, we were kind of talking about it and I think we were all feeling very heavy about this. And you know, people ask, how does this, 
How does this even happen in a church where we claim that Christ is the head of the church? How does this happen? And I'm, you know, I, I, maybe I'm not the person to ask this question to because I'm pretty simple in this response. I would just say I, I, I think it all began because there was someone at some point in time that made some decision that wasn't about Christ. He wasn't first. They made a decision in which they weren't asking what would Jesus do in this situation, obviously, they pushed him aside and they did something else. Sometimes people ask me, and I, I, probably every couple of weeks, at least somebody in this church asks me, um, Pastor, how, I'm, I'm hearing all the time about pastors who are falling in, in moral sin. How do our pastors, how do our leaders protect themselves from this? And again, I, I don't have five ways to protect yourself. I, I've seen a lot of ways that don't work. I don't know what answer to give. And I think this is a good question, not just as a church leader, but as a, as a spouse, as a parent, you know, as a friend. How do we keep ourselves from falling to sin? And I don't know any other answer except what I, I, I often tell people, and they don't seem overly impressed by my answer, but my answer is I think we just have to stay humble. Because if pride is at the root of all sin, then it makes sense that humility might be at the beginning of all godliness. Christ himself was described as, as humble. Humility is remembering who God is and who you are not and who I am not. Christ is the head of this church. I'm not the head of this church. The pastors are not the head of this church. The board is not the head of this church. The big givers are not the head of this church. The squeaky wheels are not the head of this church. Christ is the head of this church. And so we must stay humble and remember who is the head of this church. And we must actively put him first in everything. He needs to be at the center of our faith. He, I, what I mean is he needs to be at the center of everything that we teach, that it all revolves around Jesus Christ. He has to be the center of our worship. Our worship must always be about Jesus, not about that was a cool song or I like that tune or blah, blah, blah. Jesus has to be at the center of the words of that song. All of our gatherings in this church need to be centered around Christ. I don't care what they're there for, they need to be centered around Christ. All of our leadership teams, all of our leaders must be submitted to Christ and lead with Christ at the center. He must be at the center of every meeting, of every decision, of all of our finances. He must be at the center of all that. And that being said, I want to close with this. He must be first in your life. And that's a great way to keep him at the center of our church is if every one of us walk into this room having brought Christ in as the center of our own life, then he will be the center of this place. Notice what he says again in verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything he might be first. This extends his firstness to everything. So, uh, and in studying this week, I found all sorts of great, like, you know, here's eight ways to keep Christ first. Here's 20 ways to keep Christ first, all that stuff. I'm, I'm a simple person, so I want to just give you on the backside of your notes a couple ways. I don't think there's any formula to keep Christ first in your life, but let me just give you a couple things to consider. I would say put him first in your soul. That's where it all starts. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Don't trust in your good works. Don't trust in, in your church. Don't trust in your pastor. Don't trust in mom and dad. Trust in Christ Give your faith and your trust to Christ. That's where all of this starts. None of this means anything if he's not first in your soul. Trust Christ with your soul. Put him first in your love. I say it because when Jesus was asked what's the most important commandment, remember he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So put him first in your love. Put him first in your affection. Put him first in your mind. We talk about this all the time, but you've got to fill your mind with God. How do you do that? You fill your mind with the word of God. You read it. You read it a lot. You read it repeatedly. I already read that book. Well, read it again, right? Read the word of God. Listen to the word of God. Get teaching on the word of God. Pay attention. Lean in. Take some notes. Memorize it. You want to get the word of God in your heart? Memorize some passages. You can do it. I know you can. There's some short verses you could memorize to get started. Here's what I want to tell you. Hearing a sermon on the word is good. Reading the word is good. Memorizing the word is powerful because then it's with you everywhere that you go and the spirit can use it in your life. You remember it in situations. 
Let Christ be first in your soul, in your love, in your mind, and then just in your living. Last week we said in your walking. I don't know any other way to put it. Just put him first. In your relationships, put him first. In your marriage, put him first. What would it look like to put Christ first in your marriage? That'd be pretty cool. What about first in your parenting? Put him first in your meals. Put him first in your job. Some of you have good jobs, so you don't go to work tomorrow. Some of you go to work on Tuesday. What would it look like to put him first when you go to work? What would that look like? What would it look like to go home today and to put him first at dinner? First in your time this afternoon. What would it look like to put him first on your calendar? What would that look like? It might mean that you get up a little early in the morning and spend a little time with God. Put him first in your time. Put him first in your love. Put him first in your conversations as you talk with people. Put him first in your eating, in your meals, in your play, in your sports, in your entertainment, in your worship. And here's what I want to tell you. Okay, you need this. You need this. But the people around you need you to do this as well. There are people who are watching you. There are people who are looking to you. There are people who are looking to see what Christ looks like in a person. What does it look like when you put Christ first? There are people watching you. There are people that you love and you care about. And maybe you pray for them and maybe you, how can I bless them today? Here's how you can bless them. Just put Christ first in the way that you live. And leave that example and that, that, that legacy. Right, that's what Romans 12 says. This is the logical way to live. It's best for you, but it's also best for everybody around you. They need to see that in somebody. And that somebody is you. You know, we sometimes forget the fact that life is short. It's short. And for some of us, no one has to tell us that. We're quite aware that life is short. It's going by fast. Some of you are young and, you know, you're indestructible, but I'm just telling you, uh, someday you're going to remember these words of mine. You're going to be like, oh yeah, he was right. He was old, but he was right. Life goes by really fast. It goes by fast. And we have an opportunity in this life to impact the people around us and make a difference. I was really reminded of that this week. Uh, my wife has an older sister and three younger brothers. In the middle of those, uh, his name is Tim. And I've shared with you for almost two years now, uh, Tim has been dealing with cancer. And uh, Tim has two uh, young children. I think one in first grade and one in third grade. And he's married. And um, uh, he's gone through a lot of chemo and a lot of drugs and a lot of treatment. And I think his body was just getting worn down here. And on Thursday... Um, he had what, what should have just been a routine biopsy, um, but it was anything but routine. And he ended up having a stroke and uh, never regained consciousness. And so the family uh, and a lot of friends uh, were gathering at the hospital yesterday. And you know how this is in the hospital right now. So you can only have one or two people in at a time. And I'm kind of the family pastor. And so um, and it, we kind of gathered and I went in to his room in ICU in the morning and just spent some time with Tim. And I, I don't know if he could hear me. Um, but people began to come in one by one, some family members. And so I just kind of stayed in there and uh, would pray with people. And mostly people came in and they just talked to Tim um, as if he could hear them. And I, some of the people I didn't even know. I, I kind of know about them, but I've never really met them. And some of them were family. But what was really interesting was when it got right down to it and people were coming to say goodbye. It was just really hard, including his own children. Was nobody really talked about his sense of humor. Nobody really talked about the fact that he had a nice expensive car or a nice home. Really what everybody said in one way or another, even if they didn't realize it was, what they remembered was Christ in him. Because Jesus was first in Tim's life. First in his words, first in his actions, first in his love. And so I just listened to one, it was just really interesting, one person after another after another, whether they knew it or not, were basically saying, you know what, Tim, thank you for putting Christ first in your life because it, it changed my life. It changed me. And now Tim gets to enjoy his reward. Last night, late in the evening, uh, Tim breathed his last and passed on to glory to be with the Lord. And, you know, my wife's entire family is just crushed right now, hurting right now, but we are, 
we are glad for him. He's not suffering anymore and he's in the presence of the Lord. But every one of us right now, the thing that we remember about Tim is his faith and what it looked like that Christ was first in someone. And we grieve and we sorrow, but we sorrow not as those who have no hope. And I'm telling you, one way or another, one way or another, there's gonna come a time when people remember you, when you won't be here. What will they say about you? What will they remember about you? What will your kids, what will be the stories they tell? Will it be Christ in you? You get to make that choice. He is, he is first, he has first place in creation, he has first place in the church. Does he have first place in your life in a practical way? I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna close together in a song. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for this letter and we thank you just for these four verses that just really clarify some things for us. They remind us that Jesus is the creator of everything that has been created. That he is Lord of everything and everything will return to him and everything will glorify him in the end. I pray for us that we will glorify him now. That we will make the logical choice to put him first in our thoughts, first in our faith, first in our words, first in our relationships, first in everything. Father, show us how to walk step by step, putting Christ first. And show us as we do that, how to be a blessing and leave a legacy with those around us that we love that we care about and who are watching us and even the people in our, in our life that we don't know are watching us, that we could leave a legacy and a blessing for them as well. Father, I thank you that, you know, even though there's a lot of tears right now, Tim got to enter glory last night. He got to meet his Savior. I thank you for that hope of glory. And I know that that day is going to come for each one of us. And I pray that when it does, we will have run a race that glorifies Jesus. And that'll be the thing that people remember. And that'll be the thing that people talk about. May Christ be first in us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say,